Every one of our four children used to have the same problem. They inherited it from their mother and father. In fact, I've seen the same thing show up in some of your kids as well. In the last couple of months, I uh, received envelopes from a couple of our children's Sunday school classes. Some, I think, was thank you. Another was birthday and precious uh, thoughts. Uh, They weren't able to write. The teacher would write their name, and then they would color. And, of course, they colored all over the page. Interesting colors were used as well. Some of the more artistic among them drew pictures of what, what looked like animals. A couple drew what looked like this pulpit uh, with a stick figure uh, standing behind it wearing glasses with little tufts of hair on the sides of his head. <laughs> didn't look anything like me at all. I, I assume they were drawing Dr. Burgraff. <laughs> a number two guy, you remember him? The cards I checked were addressed to me. And they were sweet gifts. As a child grows up, he learns to color with the right crayons. He, he learns to appropriate the right colors so that the sun is no longer blue and the grass red, a horse purple. And he also learns how to color in between the lines, learning how to stay, as it were, on the right page. Every Christian has similar problems when it comes to uh, prayer. We have to learn how to uh, choose the appropriate words. Uh, we have to learn how to pray along biblical lines and within biblical boundaries. We, we have to stay on the right page with God. And, and we have some misconceptions about prayer. Early on, it sort of gets caught in our throat that um, only the really spiritual people get a, get a hearing from God. I mean, you've got to be among the elite. There are a lot of people trying to get his attention, and so you've you got to be a cut above. You've got to do something unusual. You've got to get his attention. Uh, and and we're, we're left with the belief that we, we don't expect much. We shouldn't expect much. Who are we? So the average Christian does not expect very much when he prays. In the autobiography of Helen Hayes, I thought this was interesting, she told the story of one Thanksgiving day. She was an actress for about 60, 70 years. And she decided to cook the first turkey for her husband and son that she'd ever attempted. It was Thanksgiving. Before serving it, she'd worked all day in the kitchen. She came out and she announced to her husband and James, her, their son, now we all know this is the first turkey I've ever cooked. If it isn't any good, if it doesn't taste good, I, I don't want anybody to say a word. Uh, we'll just get up from the table without making any comments, and we'll go out to a restaurant to eat. She went back into the kitchen. When she was finished, she finally entered the dining room, bearing that turkey on a platter. She found her husband and son seated at the table with their hats and coats already on. <laughs> They're not expecting much out of this meal. We're ready. Guys, this is not a suggestion. Don't try this one at at home. I wonder if we approach God with our hats and coats on. You know, we, we, we know we're supposed to pull up to the table. We're supposed to be there. But we really don't expect much from the experience. What we expect out of prayer has a lot to do with determining when we will pray and why. 
As uh, James the Apostle is coming uh, close to the end of his letter, he addresses the subject of prayer because he knows it will determine endurance. He knows that endurance depends upon communion. He knows that perseverance must be supported with prayer. He he knows that spiritual determination is not enough. It must be reinforced with spiritual communication. And in the last uh, paragraph, really, full paragraph of his letter, we began dissecting what he meant when he talked about praying. Now, we can't do much of a review, but this is one of those sermons that builds upon the other, and I fear misunderstanding, and so I want to spend just a few minutes reviewing. Five different opportunities to engage in prayer. The first, we were challenged to pray whenever we were overflowing with emotion. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. In other words, no matter where you are on the emotional spectrum between Gladness and sadness. Pray about it. Make sure you talk to the Lord about it. In fact, singing and praying, these imperatives, uh, language scholars believe they're, they're interchangeable. You can sing when you're sad. You can pray when you're, you're glad. Pray when you are overflowing with emotion, good or bad. Secondly, we learn that we're to pray when overcome with weakness. He writes, is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, third-class condition, James is saying, and more than likely he has in this context, they will be forgiven him. Now, this is the confusing part of it, and we can't address everything we address. But at least for today, we looked carefully at the words translated sick in verses 14 and 15. They could be translated weak in verse 14. It's a different word in verse 15. It could be translated weary. If you're weak and weary, Call for the elders of the church. Both words, by the way, appear in the New Testament, and they speak of physical weariness and weak people who are undergoing trials and tribulations, and in this context, in in, in specific order, sins that have not been confessed. That's why the writer of Hebrews uses the same word James uses here when he encourages his audience to run the race, to endure, to stay at it, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Focus on him. Look at him, he will say in Hebrews chapter 12. He endured the cross. Look at the hostility he endured from sinners. And in so looking, in so considering him, you will not grow weary. And Lucart, same word James uses here. If you're weak, if you're weary. So pray when you are overcome with weakness. Now, more specifically, and I gave you a third point, pray when you are overpowered by sin, because the elders are called here in this text, properly understood, because this individual is weak 
and weary, primarily because of unrepentant sin. The context here requiring the presence of the elders is that of a disciplined believer who now desires to repent. He desires to restore fellowship with the assembly that he's no longer able to attend. He's at the end of himself. He's besieged by guilt and and sorrow, spiritual weakness which has led to fatigue in his body. And there there is no one so weary as a believer hiding sin. There's no no one more discouraged than a Christian living a secret life of hypocrisy. That's the context here. Like David the psalmist who described his unrepentant state with his own physical infirmities, he said, before he repented, his body was wasting away. His vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. So he calls the elders. He wants to be restored. They come and anoint him with oil, a practice the Jewish audience of James' letter would have been well aware of. The word for anoint, which has turned into some kind of sacred anointing, a little dab on the forehead, has nothing to do with a little dab on the forehead. The Greek participle James uses is a full body rubdown. Women would attend with the elders to, to do this for the woman who's weak and weary, who now is repenting of sin. Family members would be enjoined to do this for the elders who came. This is the best ancient medical practice and treatment. In fact, to this day, the weak and fatigued go to the spa to get that full body rubbed down. The bigger issue, however, is addressed, and that is what brought them to that fatigue and weariness. It is the sin that they are now admitting that has barred them from the sweet presence of the assembly. So we're told to pray when we are overflowing with emotion, when we are overcome with weakness, when we are overpowered by sin. Now James continues in the context of sin and confession and fellowship, but now he broadens it to the entire body. He says to pray when you are overwrought with spiritual needs. That would be the fourth setting for prayer. Pray when you are overwrought with spiritual needs. Notice verse 16. Therefore, that is in light of what we've just learned and seen, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. In other words, what you've just seen happen, what you've just observed that occurred in the life of this one who didn't confess, admit, the word admission would be a good translation of the word confess, You've seen the mental and physical effects. You've seen the spiritual weariness. You've seen the horror of that discipline. You've seen him handed over, as Paul said to the the church in Corinth, to the full effects of Satan. You've seen what that brought about by unrepentant sin. Don't go there. Earlier on, admit, have that circle of accountability where that admission is made for support. Keep your accounts short and clean. In fact, these are two more imperatives, two more exclamation points from James. You could translate them, make a practice of confessing your sins to one another. Make a practice, make a habit of praying for one another. Now, the word for confess, 
Let me go back there just for a moment. It's a compound word that refers to open and honest sharing with another believer of your struggle and your failures. It means to let people know the battle you're in so that you will not progress into even more weakness and fatigue, which would lead you perhaps to potentially toward discipline. Now be careful in this. Be careful that that you don't enter into some kind of, or take from this, that this is an act of the assembly. The construction one to another means those that you have brought into close proximity. Early on in Methodism, John Wesley introduced what he called public confessions. And those public confessions actually led to even more immorality. People were confessing things that the body didn't need to hear. And so they disbanded it. What he's saying is find someone, perhaps even someone that you could respect, that you could enjoin to pray with you because of this besetting sin, this, this obstacle, this, this struggle that you're having. James is not prescribing here, he's not promoting some sacrament of confession between a believer and a priest. In fact, you notice that James clearly tells us we're acknowledging our sin to whom? One another. The idea of sacramental confession was unheard of in the church until the 5th century when the Pope instituted it into the church. In fact, one of the doctrines we hold dear as Protestants that we often take for granted because we don't utilize it more often through prayer is the doctrine that came out of the Reformation of the 16th century, simply known as uh, the doctrine of the individual priesthood of the believer. Peter says, you are priests. You're a nation of priests. You have immediate access to God. You don't have to wait till Saturday, and you don't have to come to somebody wearing a collar or a necktie. You can go directly and immediately to God. What James is recommending here is the admission of weakness and failure and sin with other believers in what we would call an accountability partnership. Out of that comes encouragement and intercession and support. You don't go tell your sin to somebody hoping they'll forgive you. Only God can do that. But you go with this admission so that they will join with you. James is highlighting the wonderful benefits of the body, that sense of protection through honest and open accountability. You see, earlier in verse 14, he's talking about someone who was isolated, someone who was alone, someone who couldn't attend the assembly. So he had to call for the elders. There is protection and blessing among brothers and sisters in Christ. I have just begun reading the biography on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, given to me by a couple in our church, just published in in, uh, 2010, actually probably the most exhaustive biography on this German pastor, a Lutheran who eventually, unfortunately, got tied up in a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was caught along with others, and before the war ended, by the order of Hitler, he was killed. But he had wonderful insight, young pastor. He wrote about the isolating effects of sin. Listen to this insight. Sin drives Christians apart. 
and produces a hellish individualism, a deadening independence. Sin withdraws us from the community of believers. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. What the enemy wants is for us to get alone. Separate, divide and destroy has been a tactic of his for centuries. And that's, that's the point of the promise from James here in verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. The word is used to refer to restored spiritually, to have well-being. And by the way, if you take this and you get out of it physical sickness, then that would be wonderful. If you ever feel sick, we'll just come and uh, we can pray for you. You'd be, you'd be well. Dr. Berggraf doesn't need to be home. He, all you had to do was come here. We all get sick. Christians get sick too. In fact, men like Job and Paul prove that sickness can be right in the middle of the will of God. The same word James uses here for healing, in fact, appears again in Hebrews chapter 12, a wonderful text of Scripture, where he uses it metaphorically, like James is using it here, about spiritual strength. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's using that as a metaphor for strength spiritually. No matter how old you are, pray for those feeble knees. Maybe you're old enough like me, it takes two or three steps to really want to keep walking. Pray for strong hands. Pray for strong feet. Endure and don't go it alone. Have somebody pray for your spiritual well-being. That's the blessing of the assembly. The, the blessing of a, of a circle of accountable partners. This is a blessing of a believing family. I, I can't tell you. In fact, I'm sure I took it for granted then, but the older I get, the more I appreciated the fact that I had a praying grandmother. Now with the Lord, has been with the Lord for many years. Worked for years with my parents' organization, with the military. She was known as Mom Hagen. We called her Granny in the family. A widow for, for many decades, giving the remainder of her life really to Christ. In her older years, after retiring, she moved into a mobile home on the property of my parents. And whether I was coming home for a break from college or in the early years of seminary, invariably I would make my way over to visit, to have that visit with Granny. And I'd go in and she'd, she'd, uh, she'd have coffee for me. And then uh, she would come around to asking me some very penetrating questions. And I would answer them dutifully. And then she would pray for me. Always with tears. She prayed long prayers. That's why she gave me coffee before she started praying. I think. <laughs> what a blessing to have had a mother-in-law who prayed for me. What a blessing to have a mother and a father who, still alive, pray. To have a believing wife who prays 
for me. Marcia gave me, in fact, just a couple of months ago, a decorative box filled with little cards, over a hundred of them, which she had handcrafted over time, taken from verses of Scripture and quotes from pastors of old like Spurgeon and Wesley and these men that she literally was praying would be my experience. What a treasure box. So we need to pray for one another. There is that spiritual well-being. There's that sense of hope that comes when you hear somebody pray for you or you know they're praying for you. We had a call come in a couple of months ago over at the wisdom office. The receptionist answered it, and it was a man that was in a crisis, a real tragic story. His son, a little middle schooler, had been out playing with ropes and and uh, he had somehow gotten tangled up and he was alone and they found him hanging. They rushed him to the ICU and, and the father called our studio. Our staff prayed. He called me back a couple of weeks ago to tell me that his son had passed away. Only child. He said that he and his wife were rejoicing that uh, 15 or so people came to trust Christ personally at the funeral. But then he confided in me his despair and his doubts and his questions. And I just listened because whenever a question begins with the word why, we are on unanswerable ground, and he knew that too. He eventually said, look, I know you're busy and I've asked questions that don't have answers. But he said, what I really did is I just wanted to call and I wanted to hear you pray for me. Which I did. See, James does not say, when you find answers to all of your questions, you will have restoration. You will have spiritual well-being. He says, just pray, and that brings the other. One leads to the other. Don't let the enemy pull you away. He wants you to be isolated. Find someone to whom you can be accountable, who will pray for your hands and your knees and your feet and your heart and your mind. So we're to pray when overflowing with emotion, when overcome with weakness, when overpowered by sin, when overwrought with spiritual needs. One more, pray when you are overwhelmed with godly desire. Now what James is going to do, and this is where I want to spend the balance of our study, he's going, he's going to give us a declaration and then an illustration. And we, we've got to understand the declaration or we're not going to apply the illustration correctly. The declaration begins here at the end of verse 16. He just kind of drops this nugget, this quotable. The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Many of us memorize that as kids. The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth or accomplisheth much. The average Christian, including myself, reads that declaration and says, well, you know, that's my problem. I'm not effective in my praying because I'm not righteous enough. It's very clear here. The effective prayer comes from a righteous man 
And I didn't have a good day. In fact, it's been a pretty bad week. So that's why, you know, it's bouncing off the ceiling. Maybe if I got a little more holy and I got a little more righteous, God would answer, well, frankly, let's just start at the beginning. God would hear my prayer. So what do we try to do? We try to be more effective. We try to be more righteous. We try to pray more effectively, more passionately. We've got to earn God's answers. So we pray longer. We pray earlier in the day. I mean, if we've got to be a cut above, there are a lot of people trying to get God's attention. If we want to get an edge out there, we, we better start when most people are sleeping, right? I, I remember practicing that in college, in Bible college. I'm praying for the ministry, and I, you know, I, I, want, to have, I want to have an effective prayer life, and so what do I do? I, I, know, I know what I'll do. I'll get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and make my way to a, a prayer tower in the middle of our campus at the top of a chapel where they had a prayer tower, a little room for guys only and little kneeling benches. That, that'll do it. God would be impressed. Even if I nodded off a time or two, God would take that into account. It is 5 o'clock in the, in the morning. So you look at the end of that verse, and it only gets worse. A righteous man's prayers accomplish much. And you think to yourself, my prayers aren't accomplishing much, if anything at all from what I can see, so it must be because I am not righteous enough or effective enough or disciplined enough. God says, yo, come on. You think I'm going to listen to you and the day you've had? Now, don't misunderstand, please. I'm not trying to give everybody a free pass to not be disciplined. To not to attempt to systematize and discipline their their walk with Christ. Slouchers make poor intercessors. And you don't want them praying for you either. Paul told Timothy to, to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. But James is making a different point here. In fact, James is not shutting off the potential of effective praying for the elite. He's actually opening it up. As I'll show you in a minute. That's why he's going to give us an illustration of this amazing, powerful, praying prophet named Elijah, and he'll say, he's just like us. And we'll get there in a minute. So what does James mean? Well, first of all, who's praying? It says a righteous man. By the way, the word man does not appear in the text It's supplied. James is referring to both men and women. You could render it a righteous person or righteous. So who is a righteous person? I know, I know, a perfect person. Thankfully, no. The word righteous, dekaiu, refers to a person who has been, get this, born again. It is the person who now has, by expressing faith in Christ alone, received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They now have the righteousness of Christ entirely granted to their account from Christ's own account. So Paul would write to the Philippians and tell them that they were filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Not through three months in a row at 5 a.m., but through Jesus Christ. 
See, the other belief leads you to pietism and mysticism and legalism, comparison. He got up at 5, I better get up at 4.58. We do that well in the church. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that God made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why the New Testament will no longer call you a sinner, but call you a what? A saint. How many of us in here today, how many of you feel like a saint? Raise your hand. It's unanimous again. We've got nobody on this campus all day long that felt like a saint. Of course you don't. You know how sinful you are. But that's our standing. That's our status. We, bankrupt, have received from Christ his righteousness so that we are called righteous. Right with God. We, though we sin, are called saint. That's our status. Our standing. Listen, here's the point. If you've come to believe in Christ by faith, In him alone you have had his righteousness credited to your account. So when you read here that the person who effectively prays is a righteous person, you can write your name right there by that word. So you practice something like this with your kids, probably more than you want to. Your older kids, I do that. You look at their bank account online. The only thing in there is is an outstanding late fee. And so you transfer money from your account, even though they are undeserving, to their bankrupt account. And now you've got less in your account than you really wanted, but you really love them and you want to help them out and and, and so on. Here's where the analogy breaks down. Christ's account never registers any lower after having made a transfer. No matter how many times the righteousness of Christ is never diminished by transferring from his reservoir of righteousness to our bankrupt account so that we are now filled up with righteousness. Paul would write, now having received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through Jesus Christ. You don't get that after three good months. It's given to you at conversion. The gift of Christ's righteousness imputed to your bankrupt account. So you are now, you can now claim to be righteous. So who can pray effective prayers? Ready? The ordinary, run-of-the-mill Christian. Like you and me. Every believer has access to him. Now, in light of this context here, it's obviously referring to the believer who's confessing his sins, right? Admitting to them. This believer is not cherishing or hiding sin. If that's the case, your first prayer for the day needs to be confession. In fact, your prayers throughout the day, like mine, are prayers of confession. Constantly grateful for the grace of Christ. Constantly grateful for our standing, our status. Lord, help me live up to that status. I want to please you. And I fail, so there's confession ongoing. David said, if I acknowledge sin in my heart, that is, if I cherish sin in my heart, God will not hear me. Psalm 66, 18. 
So who can pray with expectation? A Christian in right standing with God, first through Christ's righteousness, and secondly through daily confession of sin. So this is not a reference to super saints get answers to their prayer. The holiest of the holy get to pray. Only those in the prayer tower at 5 a.m. can ever hope to get their foot into the divine doorway. Now listen, if you're a Christian, no matter how ordinary you are, how ordinary you think you are, you have an invitation to approach the throne of God with boldness and confident access through faith in Christ, Ephesians 3, verse 12. And that invitation is good any time of the day and any time of the night. In fact, I'll never forget one leader sought to address the pietism that was growing on the campus. Students were sleeping through class because they were up so early praying, and this one got up that early. Well, I got to get up a little earlier. And this veteran warrior for Christ in his 70s stood in chapel, and he he said, I understand that, that, that you're getting up early, some of you very early, to pray. He said, I want you to know that I get up at 2 a.m. And everybody went, oh, man, I can't match that. And then after a pause, he said, and after I go to the bathroom, I go back to bed and get a good night's sleep. (laughs) Thank you for the realism. Good advice. James says here that the praying of the ordinary believer is effective. You could render that powerful. These prayers, by the way, the word for prayer is different than in verse 15. The the word in verse 15 means for praying in general, pray about everything and anything. Here it's a reference in verse 16 to making a special request. The Greeks used it as someone approaching a sovereign king to make a petition. Uh, This is Esther who will make a petition to the king. So you can render James' text here, this nugget, powerful is the petition of an ordinary believer. Okay? Powerful is the petition of an ordinary believer. And that just staggers my mind. That staggers my mind. That's why I wanted to take you through the tedium of translation work, because I I want you to understand what's so easily misunderstood, and by that discouraging and defeating, and there are people on the sidelines, prayer, you know, I'm just not qualified. James is saying, powerful is the petition of an ordinary believer, young or old, in the faith, young or old, in years. In fact, don't you just love to hear the prayers of children? They haven't gotten old enough to do anything other than assume that God's listening to them. They're not all hung up on all this other stuff, and they just assume not only is he listening, but that prayer is coming. That answer is. I love this story Vernon Jansen told of a young boy who was, who was banking on God hearing. He was sitting in a Sunday morning service, and this young boy was acting up during the service. The parents both did their best to maintain some sense of order. None of it worked. Finally, the frustrated father picked the little fellow up, walked sternly down the middle aisle on his way out. This kid was in trouble. Just as they reached the doorway to the foyer, the little boy called out loudly to the congregation, Pray for me! <laughs> Pray for me. <laughs> I love that. Oh, man, I live that. Didn't think of asking the congregation to pray, but 
was there. The trouble is he probably still got a spanking. And he might think that either the congregation didn't pray or they didn't know how. And that's the, that's the problem we would have. You might be sitting out there saying, Stephen, I still got a problem. I got a big question. I mean, I mean, thank you for letting me know that ordinary Christians get to pray too and that God hears us no matter what time of day or night. But James says here at the end of this verse that their prayers accomplish much. I don't, I don't really see a lot accomplished. In fact, I asked for something to be accomplished and it didn't happen. And I just assumed that I wasn't righteous enough or God wasn't listening. And so I've kind of thought of giving up on the whole idea. I just pray normal prayers, you know. I'm not asking God for much because I don't think he's going to do much for me. Well, I want you to follow me very carefully. This word translated, one word translated, can accomplish much, is a word that appears several times in the New Testament, and every time except for one refers to the working of God's Spirit. It's the verb energumene. It gives us our transliterated word energy. What James is saying is this. Follow this carefully. The powerful petition of an ordinary believer is energized. Now, we've got a little bit of a sticky problem. You can translate this one of two ways. You can translate it to mean that this prayer has energy all by itself. That's what linguists call the middle voice. You just say it, and it'll get answered because you said it. You just ask it, and God will give it to you because you asked it. You just name it. Have you ever heard of that one? You just claim it. That's middle voice. Or you could translate it in the passive voice to mean that your prayer does nothing unless someone outside of it touches it. I believe that's what he's talking about. In fact, I think that's consistent with the theology of prayer, and I'm disappointed this is translated in the middle voice here. What James is saying is the powerful petition of an ordinary believer is energized, and we know that that person outside of the prayer is God's Spirit. That's exactly what James is going to illustrate here in the life of Elijah. Elijah's prayers were acts of obedience. In fact, notice verse 17. Elijah, this illustration, was a man with a nature like ours. Why say that? Well, he's writing to Jews. By the time James wrote this letter, the Jews had made Elijah a super saint, a hero, perfect I mean, if there was ever a saint, oh, Elijah was a saint. The guy didn't even die. He went up in a chariot. He called fire down from heaven. He raised the dead. (laughs) I want that guy praying for me. We take it all out of context. Elijah was praying according to the will of God. In fact, if you go back into 1 Kings, you discover that God actually told Elijah what to pray about and when to pray it. He was simply praying the prescription of God's will, and God touched his prayers, and those prayers then energized, accomplished much. The same can be true of you and me. When our prayers line up with the will of God, God will energize them into action. But you see, Elijah, by this time, is, is, in fact, he was called by the rabbis the grandest character ever produced by the nation Israel. In fact, traditions had been developed by the time James wrote this letter that attributed superhuman traits 
to Elijah. I can't imagine any body of believers thinking somebody's extra special. Oh, of course, we do it all the time. I mean, look at what he did. I mean, when that guy prayed, goodness gracious. But if taken out of context, it is misinterpreted. Elijah was a prophet of God who obeyed the word of God, prayed according to the will of God, and God did miraculous things through the vehicle of his praying. That divine mystery combining our prayers with the purposes of God. And Elijah, if you do study his life, you'll discover a man who was passionate with godly desire. He was overwhelmed for the glory of God. You see, his nation is rebelling against God. They've got an immoral, wicked hypocrite named Ahab on the throne with his wife named Jezebel who is paying the compensation of these false prophets of Baal. He's worked up. The nation is not glorifying God. And so he knows from the scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 28, that a nation rebelling against God, the punishment for apostasy was drought. And the repentant nation can expect rain. So he's praying the prescribed will of God. Notice further in verse 17, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Again, we don't have time here, but you go back to First Kings sometime on your own and discover that rain came after the prophets of Baal were defeated in that amazing duel of fire. Remember that? Prophets of Baal had their altar. Elijah has his. Pour water around it, on it, whatever, and you pray. You guys, I'll let you go first. And those prophets of Baal prayed and prayed and prayed. They even began cutting themselves. That'll get their God's attention. He never responded with fire. And Elijah said, you might back up a little bit. Show them you are the true God. Does that mean that we can do that? Does that mean that we can go out here and and, uh, prove that God is the God he is by calling down fire? That would be fun. God, show show that boss of mine right there. Show that neighbor. Elijah was not just praying to manipulate the weather. I mean, if we could all manipulate the weather, you know what? We wouldn't have one crop. There would never be a wet Saturday. Weather would be constant. It'd always be 72 degrees. It's like it is in California. Look how messed up they are. It's just not right. We are praying not to have our will done. We'd like it a little warmer, a little cooler. We don't pray for our will to be done in heaven. We pray that God's will will be done on earth. And listen, we pray for many more reasons than for answers. And I just propped my feet up and went through the things that came to my mind. Nearly a dozen, right off the top of my head, we pray. I jotted in here because it develops our relationship with Christ. We pray because God commands us to. We pray because it reminds us of our inadequacy. Because it focuses our dependency on God. Because it's an act of worship. Because others need our intercession. Because our minds and hearts need daily cleansing. Because we need and long for His presence. Because it surrenders us to His will. Because we believe that God always answers us. 
He does. It might be no, never. It might be no, but wait, not now. It might be yes, but not like you're praying. It might be yes, just like you're praying. And don't miss this. You, you could say, coming to the end of a study like this, well, you know, if God will do what God will do, then I don't need to pray about anything. It's over here on this extreme. Or the other extreme, if I don't pray, I'm not sure God's going to win, so I better pray for God and the church, because if I don't, we'll be in a mess. Two extremes. They're both imbalanced. When we pray, we can rest assured that when our petitions and God's purposes intertwine, the result becomes an energized combination of divine power with our surrendered, willing partnership, which leads to action, which leads to fulfillment, which leads to movement, which leads to growth, which leads to fruit. And by the way, it leads to joy in the lives of those who were willing at some point in their day to pray, overwhelmed, overwhelmed with godly desire, for the glory of God. Like the missionary William Carey, who lived by the motto, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. We'll do everything we can do. And we will ask God to do what only he can do. And when we pray, and those two things connect, and we never know when we pray, if they will, when they do, an explosion of energy, effect, power, fruit. So, James says, pray when you are overflowing with emotion. Pray when you are overcome with weakness. Pray when you are overpowered by sin. Pray when you are overwrought with spiritual needs. And pray when you are overwhelmed with godly desire, ultimately, for the glory of God. With your heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment, I think the best thing we could do at the end of a study like this is spend a moment of prayer. Maybe for you, the door has opened back up. You didn't think you were qualified. That was the lie of the enemy. You didn't think that God would hear. It's another lie. You didn't think, unless it hurt in some way, God really wouldn't take note. That's another lie. He loves you. His Son has imputed to your account His own righteousness. You're one of His saints. And you've been given an open invitation to come anytime you want and commune. So why don't you do that just for a moment with whatever the Spirit of God touches in your heart or mind to say to your triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who love you, who indwell you. If you don't have a relationship with God through Christ, it'll just be meaningless words. You have to have a relationship established and the righteousness of Christ given to you.
if you don't know how to do that, how to ask for that, how to pray the gospel, we're here. Maybe you're a believer and you'd just like to have someone pray with you. It'll be our delight. Father, would you help us to be? Would you compel us to be a praying church, a surrendered church, a singing body, an accountable body, a disciplining body, a restoring body? Would you help us to be real and realistic, to shun the pietisms of our day, the comparisons, the elevations of some above others? Thank you for this assembly and the privilege we have had today to worship you, to sing to you, to study words from you, and now to close by praying together to you. And everyone said, Amen.